Welcome to the Cinema Men Podcast. I'm your host, John Murphy, and I'm joined by my co-host, Matt Hurdle. Hey. Sorry, guys. I'm a little distracted by this cool new kite. I'm flying it, and it's really high. He's easily amused, folks. Uh, Today, we are going to be taking a look at the 1989 horror thriller... Pet Cemetery, directed by Mary Lambert and starring Dale Midkiff, Fred Gwynn, and Denise Crosby. If this is your first time joining us, what we typically do is start off with a review of the film. We follow that up with our very own awards, the Spice Awards. Oh no, John, I dropped my kite. I'll I'll be right back. I gotta chase it down. All right, be careful, bud. Finally, Did You Know is a section in which we go through some interesting facts about the movie we found on the internet. This is a spoiler podcast, so if you've never seen the movie and you don't want to be spoiled, pause this episode, go watch the movie, and then come back. Also, stay tuned until the end of the episode, where we always reveal what our next movie will be so you can follow along with us. Before we get started, I wanted to let you all know where you can get in touch with us. We want your feedback, so if you have a suggestion or just want to give us your take on a movie, feel free to email us at feedback at cinemamenpodcast.com. Or check us out on Twitter at twitter.com slash cinemamempod. If you would like to support us monetarily and have the means to do so, you can go to anchor.fm slash cinemamempodcast slash support. Also, you can support us. I'm going to start that over. I forgot that was in there, too. <laughs> you even said you even <laughs> also <laughs> also uh, you can support us don't you know he reads everything that's on the teleprompter <laughs> alright sorry <clears throat> uh <laughs> If you would like to support us monetarily and have the means to do so, you can go to anchor.fm slash podcast slash support. You can support us for as little as 99 cents a month, and we use the money to buy movies and improve the quality of the podcast. So in advance, thank you very much. Reading the plot synopsis from imdb.com is after tragedy strikes... A grieving father discovers an ancient burial ground beneath his home with the power to raise the dead. Oh my god, man, no! 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 I'm a ghost now. (laughs) Got this massive head wound. Great. How do you feel? I lost the kite. Well, that sucks. Thankfully, we're uh, in this place where the dead speak, so I'm still good. I'll bring you back to life. Thanks. I'll find an old Indian burial ground. <laughs> Just keep and me I'll away bury from, your body. Keep me away from scalpels and knives. <laughs> what review? All right. After all that nonsense, Matt Hurdle. Yeah. What did you think of this movie? Oh, you're going to make me start, huh? Yeah. All right. Well, since I'm recently deceased, I'll uh, speak freely. Diseased. so this movie is probably the hardest movie for me to review so far of all the movies that we've done um i'm at a weird kind of 
uh, what would I call it? Crossroads, I guess. In that, personally, this movie was way, 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 way too dark for me. Um, I was sad and depressed and unhappy when it was over. So, personally, from a, I am a viewer. I'm in the audience, and I'm watching this movie. I thought this movie was terrible. However, uh, if I step away from that and I take a look at the movie um, outside of, of my personal watching experience and I look at it as a sum of its parts, which is, you know, a, a plot, you know, the sound, the art, the, the points it's trying to make, the, the story that it tells or not so much the story that it tells, but how it tells the story. It's pretty dang good. Um, so it, it's it's hard. It's hard for me to review, so I'm going to do my best. But I'm afraid that the end review is going to be me hating on this movie and then giving it a really high score, right? Because just because I didn't necessarily like it, that doesn't mean that I don't think it's a good movie. Sure. So as I said, the, the movie's super dark, and it's too dark for me. Um, it was very hard for me to review it like I've said, because it really, it just made me depressed. Um, I never got thrilled. I never got scared. I just was sad through the whole movie. Things kept happening and I just got more and more sad. Uh, You know, I saw this movie a few times when I was a a younger guy and back then it didn't have this effect on me, but now I'm a, I'm a husband. I'm a father of a five-year-old boy who's not too far away from what Gage is in this movie, which I would guess he's around two two or three probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm a fawn owner of three cats. And uh, so this movie, it strikes a chord with me that most movies don't. Right. In, in fact, I don't, I can't think of any movie that, that hits me like this one does. And uh, I'm going to, I'm going to try to cover it fairly, but I just, I wanted to get that out there. Right. This movie, it just made me sad. And if you're in a situation similar to me where you've got at least one young child with you and you're a parent to that child or at least a, a very close to that child, I would recommend not watching this. Right. I think um, it's not worth it. <laughs> like <laughs> it, it got me so sad. I really I don't want to even talk about it, which is probably <laughs> kind of hard to believe because I've been going for like three minutes already, but I'm doing my best. I'm putting on my brave face and and plowing through the fields. So let's start with the plot, right? The the plot I felt like was unique. I I can't think of any other movie that's similar to this. It's kind of zombie, but not really zombie, you know, because it's just like one person and you made them kind of thing. Maybe some Frankenstein vibes to it. Um, but basically, a doctor winds up getting a new job. He moves with his family to take the job. They live along a, a road with these semi-trucks where they speed past them because they know that they can get away with it through this chunk of road. Meets a nice not next-door neighbor. Uh, they all become friends. They have a cat that gets killed by a truck. The neighbor tells him about a burial ground. Takes him out there, bury the cat. Cat comes back to life, and the cat's crazy. But it's a cat, so it's not too crazy. Like, what's a house cat really going to do? You know, like it's not like it's going to you know run around plotting your demise. They do that anyway. So, right. Uh, Fast forward a bit. Kid gets hit by the truck. Kid dies. And uh, he does the same thing with the kid. 
uh, a big mess ensues and everyone winds up dead pretty much. All right. And I'm, I'm purposefully skipping through the plot pretty lightly because I'm sure we'll get into it later. Um, you know, like I said, the, the movie made me sad. And as a result, I didn't really like it, but um, I never got bored. I never looked away from the screen or looked at my phone or did something because I was not into the movie because I was always into the movie. Um it was kind of like watching footage of some terrible accident on TV on the news or something, you know, like I, it was bad to watch it. It was sad. I knew it was, but and I knew there was nothing I could do. So I just kind of watched the movie and felt bad. Um, but I mean, despite that, I have to say that the story did adequately engage me. Right. I was interested. I got sucked in. And while I didn't enjoy the story, um, I was interested and I watched and I have to give it points for that. So I can't deny that the, the plot was interesting and, and written very well. I felt like it really was, especially for a King adaptation. Um, as far as the art direction, um, the movie reflects the fact that it's dark through its art direction. Uh, you do get some family scenes where there's lots of light and colors and happy music, but those are broken. Uh, death comes and everything turns into dark shades and you know, browns, blacks, grays, blues, uh, and darkness, which is pretty much broken only by, uh, you know, lights in the house or fire or like headlights on a car, right? Like other than that, it's all just darkness, moonlight. I guess you could say that. Um, there's some, there's some pretty eh, special effects in the movie. Um, but this is 89. So it gets a pass on eh, special effects. Uh, there was this blue glow that you see in the pet cemetery that actually didn't look too bad. Uh, but on the reverse side of that, um, there's a scene where Lewis and Gage, which is the, the husband and the toddler get in a fight. And that was not great. Like it looks like Lewis is running around holding the baby doll and going, ah, ah, ah. it reminds me <laughs> of, this, you know, like when a raccoon attacks somebody and it's obviously a stuffed animal and they're just wiggling it around with their hands kind of thing. <laughs> um, the makeup was top notch. I thought uh, mm -hmm. the character of Victor, his makeup was incredible. I think a lot of people who've seen this film are going to have a lot of makeup scenes that they're just not going to forget. You know, um, the this Victor's ghost with the head wound on him. I don't think anyone's going to forget that. Um, the scalpel. Cutting through Judd's heel. Most people won't forget that scene. And uh, the bloody legs as Rachel shows up at the end. Uh, mm -hmm. all, all great. Uh, plus her face. Her face looked amazing. That was all makeup, practical effects stuff. And it looked really good. Uh, I also wanted to mention the creature effects. Because um, they were really good in this movie, too. Um, the, the church, the cat that's in the movie. Uh, there is a scene where he he kills Church a second time with a syringe, and I thought they'd actually killed a cat. Like I really <laughs> thought they'd killed a cat. I wound up looking up and finding out what happened, but I was blown away by how real that was. Like I was kind of shocked. And then at the end, the credits were like, no animals were harmed, so right. that was good. But uh, so I got to give it good good marks for art direction. Uh, acting was great. Especially for a King adaptation, acting was great. Um, you know, Judd was a little over the top at times, but for the most part, amazing. Uh, Lewis did great. Rachel did great. The kids did great. Um, 
really good across across the board for the most part, which is really surprising to me for a King adaptation. You usually get some pretty hokey acting. Mm -hmm. I didn't see that here. So, uh, I, I, I guess I'll mention the music, the music. I think I never noticed it really until the end credits. So we've said before that if you don't notice the music, that's a good sign as far as the soundtrack's going. So I've got to give the music okay points because I never noticed any music. Um, so that's good. Uh, I will say that at the end, whenever the credits roll, we hear uh, the amazing Ramon song, Pet Cemetery, uh, which I'm saying with uh, sarcastic quotation marks, because while I don't want to knock the Ramones, that song is is not great. And it doesn't fit into the context of this film at all. And you get like this really depressing, horrible ending. And then you cut to this hokey rock and roll song. And that was really kind of jarring to me. But <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess I'll summarize and then I'll shut up and let you talk. So overall, I, I didn't like this movie. Right. But I still think it's a good movie. Uh, the plot's unique. The effects are pretty good. Um, I just couldn't get over the subject matter of the plot. It, it was way too dark for me. Um, and I'm kind of a Stephen King fan. So uh, I feel like that's saying something, right? This movie is dark, dark. Um, mm -hmm. There's no happiness in this film to be found, right? There, there's no laughs. There's no joy. There is just sadness and death, right? There's a couple of family scenes, but if if you've seen that, which most people have seen this movie or know the story by now, so you know what's coming. So even that happiness is is blown away by what you know is coming. Mm -hmm. Um it really speaks to the human struggle to fight against your inevitable death. Like it just drives that point home with a hammer, right? It's like every one of us is going to die one day. There's nothing you can do about it, right? You can try to fight it. You can fight all you want, but it's going to come for you in the end. And not only is it going to come from you, but it's going to come for everyone you love, everybody. And there's nothing you can do about it. You're, you're way better off just accepting that fact and living your life as opposed to uh, to trying to do like fight against it, you know. And I feel like that was the whole point of this film. Um, this movie really did a good job of teaching that lesson, I have to say, although it was a little bit heavy handed about it. Right. It's kind of like if I went over to your house, John, and swiped an apple from your fridge and you cut off my hand to teach me a lesson. But Sounds just <laughs> that's that's how it happened, right? <laughs> uh, so yeah, I gotta I'm give it my apples. The movie's better than decent; it's good, uh, but it's just not my cup of tea. Um, but you know, you got grown kids or you're childless, you'll probably really like the movie. You might really hmm. like the movie if you like, you know, uh, depressing, dark, horrible things. Then <laughs> knock yourself out with this one. <laughs> Well, okay then. Uh, I agree with some of what you said. Um, so the reason th this was my pick this week. And uh, one of the reasons it was my pick is because I have a particular personal goal in life that I've been striving towards for probably six years now. And that is to read every single Stephen King novel 
from the order in which they were in the order in which they were released. So and after I read the book, I watch the thing. So typically every single Stephen King movie has or book has been turned into a movie or a TV show or something. And so after I read the book, I will watch the movie. Uh, so far, I've read and watched every single Stephen King thing starting with Carrie, which was his first novel all the way up to this move, this book, Pet Cemetery. So having fin- recently finished the book, uh, which was written in 1983, time to watch the movie. So the short and sweet book review is I thought the book is extremely compelling, uh, quite excellent, and It actually takes a few plot points from The Monkey's Paw, if you're familiar with that story written by W.W. Jacobs. But that's not neither here nor there. But I will be comparing the book to the movie quite a bit throughout the podcast. So the movie is a pretty close adaptation of the book. And that makes sense because Stephen King wrote the screenplay. There are some things that have changed, of course, Like any adaptation, they change things. One of the things that changed is uh, Judd Crandall in the book has a wife named Norma. Uh, He does not have a wife in this movie, or maybe she had already passed. They don't mention her a wife. Also, the book has a Missy Dandridge who um, she was just a babysitter in the book. And she doesn't die in the, like in the movie where she has she has this fear of this just stomach disease and she thinks she has cancer. And so she ends up hang, hanging herself. Um, but overall, the main story beats were pretty one to one. I thought the movie was good. I didn't think it was great, but it was good. Um. The story is pretty close to the to the book, like I said. And I think the story, like Matt said, is something that a lot of parents especially can relate to. There's the worry over your children. You have arguments with your spouse, feelings of extreme loss and grief. All those things are normal human emotions that we can relate to in one way or the other. I've got to say, man, like like watching this as a parent is an entirely yes. different experience than watching it pre-children. 100%. You're exactly and, right. And really with any movie that involves children, if you once you become a parent and you watch things that have children in them, you automatically project your child's face onto those things and it just makes everything that much more impactful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um so when you have a movie where a child gets run over by an 18-wheeler, Obviously, that's going to cause a problem. Uh, Hopefully cause a problem. Um, The film does throw in some supernatural stuff because obviously we're bringing people back to life. But really, that's all the supernatural there is in the movie. Uh, The book goes into a lot. There's a little more. You, oh. You've got the daughter with the the daughter is kind of like showing the shining right from the oh, she gets, she's having sure. the prophetic dreams and stuff. And then sure. you've got the, the ghost, Victor, the ghost. OK, I relate but, that to the whole thing yeah. with the cemetery. But all right. anyway, sorry. sorry. Um, but when you compare all that to the book, the book goes into the cemetery and the Micmac 
burial ground has this presence, this evil presence. And every time someone or something is buried in the burial ground, it brings that evil to light even more and makes it more powerful. And Lewis, who's the main character, he actually gets consumed by this need to resurrect his son. But a lot of it isn't from him. It's from this compulsion that he's getting from this area. And for me, that that's the better angle because Lewis Creed is a pretty sane person. He's a doctor, for goodness sake. Uh, I think he probably has a level head, but in the movie, it really makes him a little unhinged, almost insane. And he he does exhibit those qualities in the book, but a lot of it is driven by the pet cemetery or the Indian burial ground. And they kind of just completely skip a lot of that in the movie. The movie left out a lot of instances of examples of the animals and things coming back that turned out to be okay. Like they show, they show Judd's uh, dog in the movie and immediately he looks feral and evil. But in the book, it shows that they demonstrate that he's, he was okay. Like spot lived for a long time before he had to be put down. Um, uh, They would, they described how the animals would have a smell or a slightly different behavior. Um, but with those animals being normal-ish, that was how part of how Lewis decided he could bring his son back, possibly relatively unchanged. But in the movie, they, they, from the get go, if you bring them back, they're, they're not, they're not good. Even church was a little more, uh, bad than he was in the book in the book. So I thought that was a bit of a misstep too, because you need a way for Lewis to say, okay, I think that's possible. But really that what they demonstrated was that it should, you know, he should have been like, well, I should never do that. Uh, but he decided to anyway. Mm. Um, as Matt said, I was not scared at all in the movie. I don't think this movie's classified as a thriller horror movie. I think it's more of a thriller with like a dash of horror. Um, it's not scary in, in any way, in my opinion. When I was a kid, I remember being scared by uh, Rachel's sister, Zelda, who suffers from spinal meningitis. <laughs> uh, I remember being extremely freaked out by her. Uh, but this latest viewing, it was almost silly uh, in the way they portrayed her. Uh, I'm not, so I wasn't scared anymore. So maybe as a kid, it's more creepy. Um, so here's where I disagree. The acting I thought was hit or miss. Mm-hmm. I, I really liked Fred Gwynn's performance as Judd Crandall. Um, I liked his main accent. I liked, you know, he was just a good old country boy, uh, a joy to be around. I, I liked him a lot. Dale Midkiff, who played Lewis Creed, however, I'm not sure he remembered how to make emotions with his face. And this is a kind of your criticism of Robocop, the remake. Mm -hmm. But um, it just seemed like he was completely emotionless. Most of the movie, Uh, there were moments. And one of my best one of my the better scenes in the movie is when he is grieving over 
the death of his son. Like he really shows a lot of acting. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, normally those scream at the sky moments are pretty hokey and stupid, but I really felt that one. <laughs> like it made sense. Um, but I give it a little bit of a pass because possibly that's how he was. It was directed like, you know, do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and Denise Crosby, who plays Rachel, his wife was in a similar situation. Not a lot of emotion going on. Uh, Miko Hughes, who plays Gage, he is the cutest little kid. Um, I thought he did a great job for a child actor. Um, excuse me. And his sister, who was uh, Blaze Birdall. Um, Actually, she, yeah, the, uh, the sister role was played by twins. Uh, they're billed as uh, Ellie and Ellie, too. Uh, but she did great. Um, pretty good little child actor. Um, there were just a few moments where the acting was a little weaker, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, visually, I thought the movie was great. Most of the shots uh, were pretty spot on with the novel that I had in my head when I was reading the book. The Pet Cemetery itself looked really awesome. All the graves were uh, really well done. The Micmac Burial Ground looked great. Um, the score was fine. I, I didn't pay attention to it, so I think it was probably decent. Mm-hmm. I did not notice the Ramones uh, song at the end uh, because I turned it off after the right before the credits started. Um, as the credits started, I guess. Um, so overall. I think the movie is exactly what I expected. Um, it was entertaining and thrilling, but also hard to watch at times. Um, had some subpar acting, in my opinion, and I don't think the plot has enough horror or supernatural stuff in it. Um, it does follow the novel pretty closely, but I don't think it takes the time to really delve into the material that makes the book great. But if you're a Stephen King fan, I think it's worth checking out. I think while it's morbid to say, I think I I fall in line with Stephen King's uh, sensibilities. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, I agree the this movie is it's hard to watch, um, especially in certain spots, but the point of of a movie is to make you feel emotions. And by far this one, this Stephen King movie makes you feel the emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, without a doubt. Right. The, like, like I'd mentioned, the, there's not very many movies out there that can make me feel that uncomfortable. Yeah. And um, it really, really, really did that well. Mm-hmm. Um, I would I would go so far as to say that this is definitely in the top probably three of all of the Stephen King adaptations in terms of how great it is as a movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's decent of, of the ones that, so if we're just talking about the ones that I've seen based on my book reading, this one, the shining, 
and the stand. Basically, there's a lot of good Stephen King movie adaptations, mm-hmm. um, but this was one of the earlier ones. And so. Uh, well, there's for, also a lot of really bad Stephen King movie adaptations. There are. Yeah. I didn't really enjoy Salem's Lot, uh, mm-hmm. but it's considered pretty good. But I did. I didn't like it. Um, so do you where do you want to start? Would you like to talk about the scene or do you want to talk about the actors specifically or? Um, why don't we just get right into the scene so that we can get that over with? OK. <laughs> As Matt alluded to in the intro. Good old Lewis Creed. To, I got hit by a truck. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you died. I forgot. <laughs> uh, Some serious old, looting there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Doc Lewis Creed. He's uh, having a picnic with his family and Judd Crandall out in a field next to the treacherous road that they live on. And uh, they're flying a kite and he's just having a grand old time with Gage, his son, and he's uh, having a bonding moment and he's having a great time. And he lets Gage uh, fly the kite a little bit. And he stops to turn around and, and talk to his wife, Rachel and Gage drops the spindle that the kite string is on. And he's not, Lewis isn't paying attention and the wind is blowing the spindle closer and closer to the road. And Gage decides he's going to go grab that spindle. Well, he uh, ends up in the road and lo and behold, here comes a Orenco 18 wheeler coming down the road. And the guy behind the wheel is not paying attention. He's trying to lip sing or, or sing along with the Ramones. And Lewis is trying to run and get to Gage as fast as he can before Gage gets run, run over. And unfortunately, he doesn't make it. And Gage gets, uh, gets run over by the semi. Yeah. And it's a real powerful scene. I mean, it is. As we said, if if you're a parent, I mean, it's hard. It's hard to watch. (laughs) It's almost the worst scene in the movie. I think there's maybe one that's a little bit harder to watch than that one. But that one is so hard to watch. You don't Mm -hmm. see kids get killed in movies. And so we're not we're not accustomed to that. And on top of that, you know, sometimes you do see kids killed. But it's never toddlers. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is just and it, it's it's such a realistic scenario, right? It's something that could yeah. happen to any parent because mm-hmm. little kids are like that, man. They just go where the wind takes them. And all you have to do is turn your head for a split second, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's it. And it, that's man. It's tough. It, it's it's such a real scene, and that's what makes it so hard. Yep. You see his, his poor little bloody shoe tumbling on the pavement, and it's just, it's one of those scenes where they don't show the actual accident. So you imagine it, which makes it worse than probably if they did with bad effects. Because yeah. you can just, you can see it in your head. Except if you're a parent, you don't see it in your head. You see your kid get hit by a truck in your head and it is mm-hmm. just awful. Yep. Um, 
I will say a little uh, anecdote in my life that relates to this, but uh, it was, a f- I guess, a few months ago. I was outside with my son and we were I was working on outside in the yard and he was playing and I was working, you know, I wasn't paying attention to him. I was working, working, and then I turn around and he's gone. And so I run around the house and he's not there. And I hear our uh, camera alarm go off. So I run around there and he's not there. So then I run to the front of the house where there's a highway and he's walking along the front of the house and I freaked out. And that's the kind of moment that you're talking that we're talking about in this movie that can just happen. Like it's not fantasy. I mean, it is fantasy and that these characters are not real, but that absolutely could happen to anyone in real life. And those are the ones that really get you. And I think probably Stephen King was he wrote this, you know, novel to try to work through some of the things he was thinking about or his mortality or his children's mortality or whatever. Um, Just to try to get it out on paper. (laughs) It's kind of a catharsis kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, there's probably some truth to that. I I don't know it for sure. But, you know, as we've discussed previously, you know, King, when he was writing this story, he uh, he wrote it for a little bit and then decided that it was just too much. Right. And so he he shelved the book for a while. And uh, after taking a break, he went back, he started writing the book again and he finished it. But then he had no intention of publishing this story. He uh, he wrote it and then he just kind of shelved it. And it was later when his wife found it and, and read it that she convinced him to publish it because she thought it was really good. So um, given that he wasn't really intending on publishing that novel, it, it would make sense that um, he was maybe writing it for, for his own therapy, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I can't imagine I'm not a good enough writer to do any of that. And I can't imagine that helping me in any way, but maybe it helps him. I can definitely see it, right? I mean, if you've got feelings you're trying to work through, putting those feelings on other characters and guiding them through dealing with that, I can definitely see how that would help. Sure. But this is kind of the whole crux of the movie. Like, it, it, it's all leading up to this point where his son dies and then he has to decide. Well, they grieve first, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then he has to decide. You know, I know I have the power to bring him back. Am I going to? And when I do, what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. And that's the that's the, where the whole where things start to go downhill. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Sometimes dead is better. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think? Well, we already talked about Fred Gwynn. And you kind of thought his performance was a little uh, over the top. So let me clarify that a little bit. Um, Yes, there were parts where I felt like uh, he was overacting a little bit. Uh, But I think it could be the accent. Uh, That Mm. accent for me, there were times when it really, really worked. And there were times when it didn't. And that could be because of my upbringing in the South around a lot of guys kind of like him, 
Judd in the movie. This is the character. Um, and, and so there, there were times when I was like, wow, this dude's awesome. And he is honestly, Fred Gwynn is awesome. Uh, but there, there were also times when I was like, eh, I don't know. Right. And most of those times I think were early on. Like, uh, you know, he, he meets the family and he's instantly just like, hey, let's go down the cemetery. I'll show it to you and the kids. It'll be a grand time. Things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to call out the the scene where he's talking to Lewis in, in the kitchen after Gage dies. And he feels guilty because he feels like as a result of him telling Lewis about the Micmac and allowing him to bury church there that the powers that inhabit that graveyard are what caused Gage to die. And I haven't read the book like John does, but I'm assuming that there's a whole plot that surrounds the powers that are in that place. Cause I, I know that's kind of how King tends to work. Uh, I've read a lot of his books, but not that one uh, for the same reason. I didn't like the movie. I just don't want to touch it. <laughs> <laughs> um but there's a scene when he's having that conversation and he breaks down saying that maybe he's responsible for Gage's death. That is some damn fine acting. Yeah, um, it's it is top notch, like Oscar good acting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think it's consistent across the entire film. Uh, otherwise, I would have just been like, holy crap, he needs an Oscar for this. Right. But yeah, that scene. Oh, my gosh, that scene. That scene was so good. I think that's so I agree with you. Um, I think the reason I liked Fred Gwynn's performance over Dale Midkiff. So is because Fred Gwynn had that accent because he seemed more different and he was a guy you could really focus on when he was talking. Dale Midkiff was just a normal guy. No accent. Like he would just, he didn't have any eccentricities, I guess. Yeah. He was just a doctor from Chicago that had just moved into town. Yeah. Yeah. And both of the guys had moments of great acting, like when Gage dies and when Judd thinks he's responsible for uh, Gage's death and all that. But Fred Gwynn's performance stood out to me, I think, because he had the overalls and the swagger and the accent and everything. Yeah. He just had more going on than. Yeah. Than I mean, did. honestly, I'd probably, I, I think I agree with you. You know, it, it may be I should have said it may be that what you're what you're getting me to discover right now is that it was the inconsistency in the acting by uh, Mr. Gwynn that got me more so than his actual performance. Sure. Um, and, you know, it, honestly, I think it boils down to that accent because I couldn't place it. I'm a Southern guy and I could not place that accent. And it felt like (laughs) it changed a little bit throughout the movie, you know, like it was the same voice and it was the same basic accent, but it felt like he'd say one word this way. And then later he'd say a word a little bit differently. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think it was something like that. I don't know. It was something about it that that got me, but I liked it and I don't want to poop on his work because I felt like, you know, he was good. He probably was the best actor in this film. Yeah, I think it, it was supposed to be a Maine accent because a lot of obviously because a lot of Stephen King stuff takes place in Maine. Mm-hmm. But Fred Gwynn is a New Yorker. Um, so maybe he I, I picked up a lot of uh, Herman Munster 
and then a lot of oh, me. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, he gets <laughs> like it was a combi- monster, right? It was a combination of those two things. Yeah. Oh, and so oh, you mentioned the, I, the I did power. want to say real quick before we switch. It was a perfect cast. Whoever yes. cast him in that role, uh, thumbs up. He he yeah. was great for that role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is. When I read the book, he is who I pictured. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. Uh, you mentioned the powers when mm-hmm. uh, you were talking about Judd Crandall's guilt. And that is in the book. And they really go into that more. And they really, like I was saying, anytime a thing is buried up there, it just increases that power. Mm-hmm. And there are things like uh, the causing Gage to die. Um, whenever Rachel, whenever Dale or Lewis sends Rachel off to his parents at the end, she tries to get back to the house and her car breaks down for no reason. And it's a brand new vehicle. Um, she can't get him on the phone. Like all these things are happening and it's all because of this power that's causing it's, it's making sure that Lewis ends up burying gauge in the burial ground. It's doing everything in his power. It's um, that's one critique I'm going to have with the, or that I do have with this movie is I felt like that that was a very interesting story point, right? And, and like I said, mm-hmm. I've read enough King to know that he he goes all in on that kind of mysterious power stuff, you know, like uh, for you King fans out there, you've got like, you know, the call and the quartet and, and I guess the quartet's gunslinger stuff, but like, you know, the call, he talks about the shining and these, these forces that influence things. Um, mm-hmm. The ghost in this book, Victor's character is a perfect example for that. So I kind of knew that it was going to be a thing, but I really wish the movie had spent more time on it. Um, as it is, it just, you're just kind of like, wait, what the, <laughs> the Micmac ground has an entity that's out. Like, what, what are you talking about? Like, it feels like Judd comes out of left field when he's like, I think the powers of that place are killed your son. And you're like, what? Judd's crazy now, you know? <laughs> And then yeah. at the end, like you're saying, when Rachel's running home, all these bad things start happening. And you're like, Victor's like, it's trying to keep you from going home or whatever. And uh, I don't know. It felt kind of out of left field all of a sudden. And I think it would have been better if they had just even just a five minute scene where Judd's talking about the power or he, like a flashback where he's remembering and somebody like this Ragman character that showed it to him maybe could mm-hmm. ex- just give us a little exposition about what lives in that ground or, you know, this influence that it has. Cause that's, that's super interesting to me. Right. Yeah. But it's just, all we get is, Oh yeah, it's got powers and it probably killed your son and it's keeping your wife from coming home. Like that's all we get. Right. There's no explanations other than that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it may not be a movie we review. Maybe it will be, but I'm excited to watch the remake, the most recent remake of Pet Cemetery. You son of a bitch! <laughs> <laughs> just to see, just to see if they explore more of the because the stuff that they describe in the book past the deadfall, it's like you know, Yeti kind of stuff, like big. Way to go. Wendigo, yeah, mm-hmm. Wendigo yeah. stuff, like large beings that are crashing through the the trees and knocking stuff over. And in this book, he's like, did you hear that? And Judd Crandall's like, ah, it's just alone. And then that's all you get. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. 
that's it. Um, so as much as I don't want to go through it again, it would be interesting. It'd be interesting to watch the remake. We're, um, we're getting a little off topic here, but, um, you should, since you're on your Stephen King quest, you should read the girl who loved Tom Gordon. Okay. That's a story about a little girl who gets lost in the woods and the Wendigo winds up chasing her essentially. Oh, it's really good. And if you're, if you like the Wendigo parts, then you're really going to like that book. How about Dale Midkiff and Denise Crosby? I thought they were both okay. And Denise Crosby at first came off to me as like a bit of a sourpuss. Um, and especially at the beginning, they both seemed like they didn't like each other. And then they kind of came around and, uh, showed a little bit more, uh, love towards each, each other. But overall throughout the movie, like I didn't really buy that they were happily married, but maybe, mm-hmm. maybe that was just, you know, I, I got the happily married vibe. You know, they, they had their, they had their issues, mm-hmm. but um, you know, <clears throat> they were in some pretty outrageous circumstances too. They, they had just moved, they had left the city in Chicago to move way over here. Um, you know, the, the husband doesn't that we know of, but the wife has a lot of past trauma that, that keeps her a little bit emotionally detached and somewhat fit to, to outbursts, you know. And so they, they had kind of they had this dynamic where they would have these fights, but they would always, if you notice, they would always come together and make up after the fights like they never held grudges. And I've seen and, and known a lot of relationships that function that way and are just fine, you know, mm-hmm. Um they they had their anger and they had their fights, but they knew what they were. They didn't make mountains out of molehills and they would always consolidate their differences afterwards and move forward, you know. And uh in that regard, I I thought it was you know, I got a good vibes from their marriage. They were also dealing with the fact that her parents hated him. We never found out why, but um, you know, they were dealing with that, which is a lot of the reason why he would stay home a lot while they would go to Chicago because he didn't, he didn't want to be around the parents. Yeah. Does the Fair book, enough. does the book go into that at all? Why the parents hated him? Yes. Um, I believe when they first started dating, um, basically the dad didn't feel like Lewis was good enough for his daughter. He's a doctor. Uh, <laughs> He was in med school at the time. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so he was going through school. Uh, I believe she was uh, working so that he could go to school. And uh, her her dad just didn't like him. And uh, he actually paid, tried to write a check to pay him to stop dating mm-hmm. Rachel. And that's the point at which uh, Lewis was like, I'm done with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they they don't they don't uh, hang out with each other. And I got the sense from the book that the the dad of Rachel was just a bit of a jerk. Like they were a high flutin family. And they had a daughter that they kept in secret who was Zelda and Rachel. And they left Rachel alone at the age of six or seven to fend to deal with Zelda while they went to some kind of social event. And then she ended up dying uh, while Mm -hmm. Rachel was taking care of her. And Mm -hmm. that was all the trauma that she was having. 
And that's why. So in the movie, Missy Dandridge dies and you notice that Rachel's not there. And Lewis says she's sick or something. Well, in the in the book, that sort of happens, except it wasn't Missy that died. It was Norma Crandall, who was Jed Crandall's wife. And she didn't make it to the funeral because she has an issue with death. And that was due to Zelda. Mm. But it's all interesting stuff. Um, <clears throat> the pet cemetery, I thought, was r- rendered really well. Like the opening shots you get from the, the movie are sweeping shots of all the different graves that these children and mm-hmm. people have buried their pets, their loved, loved, beloved pets. And I thought it was it was done pretty well. What did you think? Yeah, I agree. Uh, that opening shot, you know, when the movie opens, we kind of start seeing, you know, clips and close zooms of the cemetery and we slowly zoom out and see it. And, um, you know, it's this odd kind of array of circles on circles, which was really interesting. I thought um, the uh, the kids reading eulogies for their pets, I thought was a really neat <laughs> touch and really well done, honestly, from a sound editing standpoint. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought it was neat. I did I like how, yeah, like you said, the concentric circles. I don't know how they knew how to do that. Like, especially when the cemetery was started, I guess it was just word of mouth. You you bury them in outward circles from oldest to newest. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I don't know either. Uh, the deadfall, the the bit of trees that were broken down, they, they had to climb over. That was done pretty well. And mm-hmm. I really like the look of the Micmac burial ground, although I'm not sure. Like, it seemed pretty open, like anybody could get there. But also, they wanted you to believe that it was really hard to get to. Uh, so I don't know. Yeah, like I said, the, that blue glowy effect, um, I actually felt like that was pretty well done. Mm-hmm. It, it was a little odd, but it was I, I liked it. I liked the way it was done. Kind of a. Reminds me of an episode of the X-Files. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Like, it, it wasn't high-budget looking or anything, but it didn't matter. It, it, it worked out pretty well, I thought. Um, we haven't talked about Victor Pascal much. Yeah, uh, He was should. a pretty big part of the movie. We definitely should. Yeah, so Victor Pascal is kind of a side character in this film. Uh, he's played by Brad Greenquist and uh, does a pretty good job. It's a little bit of an odd role, so it's kind of hard to say that he did a good job. But, I mean, he did adequately, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, near the beginning of the film, uh, on one of Lewis's first days at work, um, a a kid is rushed in who's been hit by a truck. Now, when I say kid, I need to clarify this kid's probably 14 to 17, right? He's a teenager. Uh, yeah, we didn't kill like a two, uh, two-year-olds. <laughs> right. uh, and, and he's rushed in, and Lewis sees him and is like, oh, my gosh. And he does as best he can. He does all the work on him he can. He's like immediately says, get an ambulance. We've got to get him to a bigger hospital. We can't handle this here. And he, he does everything he can. And despite his best efforts, the kid dies anyway. Um, and it's, you know, just another check of the box on the tragedies in this film. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it's not long after that that uh, he starts appearing as a ghost to Lewis. And, um, you know, 
it's kind of walks the line on, is this a dream or is this real? Right? Like Lewis wakes up in bed when the ghost appears in his room and he looks horrible, right? Like he's, he's pale and he's got kind of sunken eyes. He's got this massive head wound on his head. And, um, but he's talking nice and he's, you know, talking to the guy. He's like, come on, come with me. And so Lewis gets out of bed. He takes him down to the pet cemetery. And so he goes down there and he basically says, um, you know, stay away from the area past here. And he points to that. Uh, what did you call it? The dead zone or deadfall, the deadfall, which is just yeah. a whole bunch of uh, like collapsed trees and brush piled in a massive what looks like somebody's getting ready for a really, really my goodness. Really? <laughs> 15-year-old <laughs> Matt. <laughs> really big bonfire, right? It's just this huge brush pile. Mm-hmm. And uh, he warns him. He's like, don't don't bury anything there. Don't do anything over there. And, um, you know, Lewis is like, you know, why are, why are you showing me this? Why are you trying to help me? And Victor says, because you tried to help me. Basically saying, you know, he knows that Lewis did everything he could to try to save him and just couldn't. And so he wants to try to repay that favor. And uh, he kind of becomes this good force that's doing everything he can to stop the bad force. So you've got Victor kind of versus the battlegrounds. And these are the the supernatural influencers, so to speak, that are working on our characters. Uh, the angel and the devil, basically, on each mm-hmm. of his shoulders. And he does everything he can to warn Lewis not to mess with that burial ground. And then um, if we fast forward the movie a little bit more, he he realizes that Lewis isn't heeding his warnings. And so he starts visiting Ellie, the daughter, in her dreams. And he also eventually starts visiting Rachel, his wife. But Rachel, for some reason that's never explained in the movie, can't ever actually see or hear him. But she can at the same time. So, like, we'll see scenes where... She's doing something like she's driving a car and he's in the passenger seat, but she has no idea. And he'll say something like, you know, you should turn left here and she'll be driving. And all of a sudden she'll think to herself, I should turn left here. Like it's that kind of dynamic, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, it's really kind of neat. It really yeah. is. Although it's a little unclear what's going on, why she can't see him and everyone else can. But um, yeah, it's cool. He's a cool character and he's a really integral part of the story. Yeah. What I liked the most about him was the visuals of him. Like, yeah, that I mean, it wasn't great, obviously, but that bleeding head with pus coming out and uh, practical effects, a lot of practical effects, good stuff. Makeup. It was it was grotesque, but well done for sure. And that that first encounter he has with uh, Lewis as a ghost, that is almost a shot for shot of the book. Like mm. he comes to the book, the bed, wakes up Lewis, and then he follows him out to the uh, pet cemetery. And I remember vividly reading the part where he wakes up and he's like, oh, it was all a dream. Thank God. And then he pulls back his covers and he's got dirt and pine needles all over in the mm-hmm. bed and he he's freaking out and he's got to figure out a way to hide the dirt and stuff. And so he goes and takes a shower and he wraps all the bed stuff up and throws it down the laundry chute because Missy is the one that takes care of the laundry, not Rachel. And so Rachel would never know. And mm. that that whole scene was great. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Gage. Okay. 
you know, it's rare that we see a toddler in a film in any kind of actual acting capacity. And here we have a toddler that's doing exactly that. You know, he, he can barely talk, but he's he's acting, he's conveying emotions. And uh, I, I'm curious what you thought about that. Yeah, it's the first I don't remember exactly the first time I watched this movie, but I was I remember thinking like this kid. Did did they cast him and he was like, you know, six years old, but they made him look like he was two or what? Because he mm-hmm. was just he was phenomenal as far as. Just showing emotion and, and doing what he was supposed to do and all that, and I don't think you could get that out of a a two year old, but maybe. Um, but anyway, I thought I thought he was great. And like I said, he's really cute. Like mm-hmm. he has this really cute face. And uh, so it's hard to watch when he ends up uh, biting the bullet. But um, when he comes back as the uh, undead gauge, like he's real menacing, like he's um, there's a point at which. Yeah, it's when Lewis uh, sticks him with the needle to to end his life again. And he sulks. He kind of sulks down and turns around. He's like, no fair or something like that. And uh, that that scene was interesting. There were, uh, I guess I'm getting a little off topic here, but there were some questionable things about the character itself. You know, um, near the end of the film, Gage, you know, he kills Judd. And uh, then he kills Rachel, although we don't see that. But Mm -hmm. Gage manages to take Rachel up into the attic hang her, break <laughs> the stairs. And then when Lewis comes through the house, throw her body at him, I guess. <laughs> and then he like, when he attacks Lewis, like, you know, realistically, Lewis could just chunk him off of him at any time, you know, mm-hmm. but no, he, he they, they do that kind of raccoon attack where uh, Gage is on him, just, you know, stabbing him and stuff. And, you know, I feel like anybody's reaction would have just been, you know, bounce pass, you know? Yeah. Just so yeah, again, realistic that, at times, but yeah, that goes back to if they had explained the power more, it would have made a little more sense. So he was probably when this movie was filmed, he was two years old. That's amazing. Cause he was born in 86 and this movie released in 89. So they probably filmed it in 88. That's crazy that he was able to, to do what he did at two years old. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I wonder yeah. if they did voiceovers for him because he talked very clearly for a two year old. They might have, or maybe he was just a really advanced child. <laughs> hmm. In any case, he did amazing for a two year old probably the best performance by a two year old I've ever seen. If not yeah. the only performance by a two year old I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you're well, other than our children, uh, I think if you're a casting guy, like that's the most important, like in this movie, the most important thing is to make sure you cast Gage correctly because he's got to be cute. He's got to be charismatic. And he's got to be able to do the things that he needs to do before and after death. And Mm -hmm. they did a great job casting that. So here's, here's something else I wanted to bring up a little bit. Um, you know, they remade this movie recently. 
at least fairly recently. Yep. And I have to say, with the exception of a few of the effects that I've mentioned, I feel like this movie really holds up. Like I was engaged and and all over this movie when I was watching it. I was sad and I didn't like it, but I was all over it. Mm -hmm. And um, it makes me wonder, like, do you think this movie held up? Like, why do you think they decided to remake this? Well, I, I, a, I do think this movie holds up and I don't think it needed a, a remake. Um, so to that end, I think one of the reasons they probably remade it is because Stephen King is having a resurgence as far as remakes of his movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also maybe they wanted to tell, Again, I don't know anything about the remake, but maybe they wanted to tell a version that was more in line with the book as far as all the supernatural stuff. Because mm. I think as far as the grief and the the family dynamics and all that and Judd and all that, that it's one spot on. But they did gloss over a lot of the uh, the evil that was in in the in the woods. So. Maybe they touch on that or maybe they went with their own take and maybe they did something completely different. I don't know. Mm. That's why I'd like to watch it. Um, just to compare and see. See how well they did the second go around. Yeah, I, I haven't seen the remake either, um, but I have kind of flipped through some pictures. One mm-hmm. gauge is just as adorable in the new one. So that's going to be awful. But two, and this <laughs> this surprised me because I didn't know this. Judd is played by John Lithgow. That's right. A very, very grizzled and distressed looking John Lithgow. (laughs) And I almost want to watch it just to see him in this perform that role. I don't don't want to watch it again because I don't want to go through that horrible heartache and depression again. But I would like to see John Lithgow act that part out. I bet he's good. Also, the resemblance of the gauges is pretty uncanny. I'm just hmm. going to throw that out there. They look very similar. Well, lucky for you, I bought the set, so I have both of them already. And I'm ready to watch the second one anytime you want to do it. Well, I'm not <laughs> going to choose to, but if you pick it as another movie, I'll watch it. Um, I will say I'm curious what you have to say about it. All right. Would you like to give this movie a star rating? All right. So here we go. This is hard. Right. Because like I said, I didn't like the movie. I don't want to ever watch this movie again. But the reason for that is because this made me this movie made me feel things that were so uncomfortable and sad and depressing that I didn't like it. And I have to give the movie points because it did. It made me feel these things. So despite the fact that I don't like the movie, um, I want to still recognize that I think it was a pretty good movie. Uh, and, And so. Even though I didn't like it and I never want to see it again, I think I'm going to bring this in as, at a seven. OK. And it probably would have been higher if if I didn't feel so horrible watching it. But yeah, where it is, I, I have to give it credit for being what I think is a pretty good, pretty good movie. Um, Yeah, I'm right there with you. I think I would just I love this exercise that I'm going through and it's probably going to take me the rest of my life. But I love well, reading. Yeah, Stephen- he, he writes them faster than you can read them. <laughs> exactly. And I'm a slow reader. So um, <laughs> I just love reading a Stephen King book and then watching the adaptation. 
And Mm -hmm. it doesn't really even matter what it is. Like even, like I said, Salem's Lot, I didn't even like the book. Uh, Oh, I love that book. Yeah. Both the book and the movie are well regarded, uh, but I didn't like either one. But I still Mm -hmm. loved the experience. I liked going through that. So that combined with, you know, I thought this was a good adaptation. I thought it had decent acting. I thought the visuals were great. The plot, while it missed out on a lot of things, was still pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to also give it a 7 out of 10. Well, there you go. And just so you know, I'm not cheating. I had written down 7 out of 10 before you said it on my piece of paper. I guess <laughs> we're going to have to agree to uh, agree. <laughs> yeah. But I think, you know, we had different points. Like, I didn't think the acting was great, uh, but I liked everything else. Um, and you like the acting across the board. Uh, but there were other things that you had issues with. Like, mm-hmm. I think the, the death scene bothered you more than it probably bothered oh, me. Yeah. Before, before we move on, I did want to talk about that, that final death scene. Or not the final one, but the next to final. The one where Gage dies. Because oh. I, I said earlier in the podcast that the him getting hit by a truck was the second worst, uh, hardest to watch scene in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my opinion, the hardest scene to watch is when Lewis has to kill Gage the second time. Mm-hmm. That was tough. <laughs> because Gage, you know, for most of the parts after he comes back from the dead, he looks dark and evil and, and scary. But, um, you know, at that point, whenever the dad plunges the syringe into him, he makes like this kind of cringy look that is exactly like a kid looks when they get a shot. And then he just kind of waddles over and kind of flops down and he's going, no fair, no fair. And it, oh, my gosh, it's heart wrenching, man. Yeah. Can you imagine having to do that? Oh, no. That's why I. I yeah, that's why I can watch it in a movie because I know it's not real. <laughs> Man, a lot. Yeah, in real life, that yeah, not not happening. Um, there was also one more thing that I wanted to talk about that we haven't yet, and then we can move on. So apologies okay. for for bringing this in after I give we give our ratings, but I feel like we need to bring this part up, and that's Zelda. We haven't really talked mm. about Zelda. Um, mm. You know. She had this interesting part in that it was hinted that she was working with the dark powers because she keeps telling Rachel, you know, uh, I'm coming to get you. Gage and I are coming to get you. And like she's she's got this part and it's even hinted to an extent that Zelda kind of possesses Gage when he comes back to life uh, just mm-hmm. a little bit. Like it, it's not there, but there's like this subtle hint that there's that they're connected, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, for example, the painting in the house in Chicago, there's this painting of this uh, odd little infant wearing a blue dress with a balloon. And I thought that that was supposed to be Zelda, but I didn't know if it was or not. Ugh, and then ugh. we see Gage later wearing that outfit. Mm. That painting was creepy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Whenever it, whenever they would show shots of it, I was like, what person would have that in their house? Makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, see, I took it but, as it was it was supposed to be Zelda when she was young. I see. And that's why they kept it there as a memorial to her. But I I don't know that, right? That's I, just kind of what me, I it looked like an, It looked like an old lady. 
Uh, but in the book, I believe what is what happens there is anytime Rachel is interacting with the evil, the evil basically turns into Zelda to try to scare her. So we're dealing um, with it. <laughs> yeah, sort of. Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably a little bit of where this it came from was some of the ideas from this. But OK. Let's do the Spice Awards. We have four categories, best actor, most underrated performance, best scene and worst scene. Okay, Matt, best actor. What do you got? All right. So I know earlier I said it's probably true that uh, Judd, right, was the best performance of this this movie, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Gwynn did an amazing job and I want to recognize that. However, he is not who I chose. I chose, and, and this was before I did my research. I made this choice before I did my research. So if I hadn't already chosen this one, I would go back and change it after learning <laughs> what I did, but okay. I'm just going to go forward and we'll get into why. Okay. I picked church. <laughs> okay. I so I'm I'm gonna read this review like I don't know the things that I now know <laughs> so that you'll know what I was thinking. Okay. Okay. All right. I have no idea how they were able to get a cat to do everything that that cat did, uh, but they pulled it off and it was absolutely amazing to me. Right. Like if you watch Church in the background, like. Even in, in scenes where it's not featured, it's just hanging out in the back. It'll be looking around and like flattening its ears and kind of sneering. Uh, the the death scene where Lewis injects the cat and kills it, amazing. Uh, I, I have no idea how that happened. And um, it, like it was just, I thought the cat was awesome. Like I've mm-hmm. never seen a cat act that amazingly before. Honest to goodness. And so for that reason, I went with church. Now, I'm going to tell you what I learned because it's only okay. fair. Church was actually like five or six cats that were each trained to do different things. <laughs> and the death scene where church is killed, they, they heavily sedated a cat. So it wasn't even acting. It was just a super drugged up cat, which made a full recovery and was fine. Right. It was veterinary and supervised. The humane or not the humane society. I don't know. Whoever does that judging the animal people were mm-hmm. on set the entire time. None of the animals were hurt. So it, it was it was all done humanely and everything was fine. Um, so I have to confess that I I didn't know that when I made my choice or I wouldn't have chosen church. Because I thought it was just one cat that they had trained to do all of these different things. So that's that's true confessions, Matt Hurdle style. True confessional. There you go. Well, regardless, I think the perception of the cat acting was good. Like it. Somebody worked it was, really hard with those cats. Yeah, because it's really hard to get a cat to do anything. Yes. All right. Well, since you didn't do it, I'm going to do it. Fred Gwynn as Judd Crandall. I'm not a vet. It was dark. Sure it was dark. 
But his head swiveled on his neck like it was full of ball bearings. When you moved him, he pulled out of Frost Lewis. Sounded like a piece of ticky tape coming off a letter. Live things don't do that. You only stop melting the frost on the way you're laying when you're dead. Well, I feel like I'm going crazy. It was the ragman told me about the place. He's who I would have picked if I had read the trivia before I made my choice. Um, as we mentioned, he I think he's just a joy to watch in the movie. He has a I think a great main accent and that's that's how they describe him in the book. And when you think of this movie, you don't picture Lewis Creed. You picture Judd Crandall mm-hmm. or Gage. Um yeah, you don't true. picture the, you don't picture them who is arguably the main actor in the movie. Yeah. Um so I I give him big props for his acting, his uh his outfit and his charisma in the movie. He did he a definitely great job. definitely feels like the kind of guy like you just want to know that guy and be friends with him. Yeah. Like he's the kind of guy you go into a local coffee joint in a small town mm-hmm. and you see him there and you're like, "Hey Judd." And he's like, "Hi, how are you doing?" Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. He's the kind of guy that would see boys fishing and be like, now y'all don't catch all the big ones out there. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Yeah. He, Let he me tell really, you a story about a big fish I caught nine really well 30 acting. years ago. <laughs> yeah. Also, that dude had been around for a while, right? Like he buried spot twice. He was in the, I guess he wasn't in it, but he was around during the second world war. Yeah. And then he was still around then and able to, you know, take out a knife and die to a two-year-old. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think in the book he was portrayed as like 70 or 80. Um, interesting. And interestingly enough, uh, Fred Gwynn was only in his sixties when he filmed this movie. Mm. And then he died three years later. Thanks for the Matt's- blazing <laughs> joy beacon there. Happy times. <laughs> it fits uh, with the movie. Why not? Yeah. It does. Everybody's dead. Everybody is dead. And you're going to die. And everyone <laughs> you love is going to die. And there's nothing you can do about it. And if you try to do something about it, you're going to get killed by your own son after you kill him twice. <laughs> Happy ending. I guess um, your wife, you were killed by your dead wife. That's right. All right. Matt's pick for, pick for best actor were all the cats that played church. <laughs> It it was church. The one cat that I thought was church is who my pick was. And then I later found out it was like six cats. Uh, and my pick was Fred Gwynn as Judd Crandall. Most underrated performance. I went with uh, Miko Huge as Gage. Where did you go? <laughs> 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 
Um, he didn't have a lot of speaking lines, but he was really cute. And that is essential, f- sort of. I mean, it doesn't matter whether the kid is cute. It's going to be horrible if he if a two year old ends up dying. Mm-hmm. But it just adds to the impact. Um, and I thought he was pretty terrifying as uh, an undead child as well with that surgeon's knife. And when he had the top hat on and it was in <laughs> the blue outfit, that was pretty creepy as well. So I thought I thought he was good. He sort was. of underrated order underrated just because. I mean, he's he's a two year old. Uh, he kind of got probably kind of got overlooked with all the other actors, but. I give him props. Yeah, definitely. Um, like I said, I've never seen a two year old in that kind of acting capacity. It was pretty phenomenal, honestly. Yeah. When when my son was two years old, I'd be lucky if I could get him to do anything I wanted him to do, much less <laughs> pretend and act somewhere differently. I'd mm-hmm. be like, hey, little guy, can you snarl and look mean for me? And he'd <laughs> laugh and then poop his pants. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't know if Gage pooped his pants or not. <laughs> I'm sure he did at least once. Uh, for me, I'm going to take you by surprise with this one, I think. I went with Susan Blomert if you pronounce it that way, uh, as Missy. Mm-hmm. Okay. She had a small role, uh, but to me, it looked like she acted her heart out. Like she played it super well. Her character was believable. Despite the fact that she was odd, she sold it. She completely sold it. Mm-hmm. Um, and she wound up endearing herself to me. She was one of the few characters that I was like, oh, hey, it's old weird Missy. You know, like, how are you? <laughs> and uh, I just, uh, you know, I feel like it was an underrated role for her because, you know, it was real small. Most people don't even remember her in the movie. And uh, I thought she did really, really well. You could say she acted her guts out. Because she had the stomach problem. Uh, and she, she knocked the <laughs> breath out of him. <laughs> she really she hung, uh, hung up her career. I don't know. She hung him high. Yeah. Okay, well, that's a that's a choice. <laughs> that's a choice. <laughs> I guess acting wise, it, it wasn't. A <laughs> that's how you know John Murphy doesn't agree with you. <laughs> I guess acting wise, it was okay, but it's a choice. The uh, the whole. Subplot was pointless. I just did. Now, I will give you that. I didn't understand the purpose of her character. She had this weird infatuation with Lewis that was never really explained. And she just kind of shows up, acts weird, and then hangs herself. You go to her funeral, and then that's it. And you're just yeah. like, okay, what was that all about? You're lucky you married a doctor. <laughs> yeah. 
What, uh, By the way, my stomach is hurting. <laughs> what was the point of that funeral? There had to have been some kind of a point to it. Was that was that when maybe? Oh, I know what it was. When that happens, that's when Ellie really starts getting curious about death. Yes, that's that's what happened. And I wasn't yes. sure either when she hangs herself. Did she hang herself in the basement of Lewis and Rachel's house? No, because it looked like it. It looked like she was in their basement. I don't think so. If so, that makes that even more odd because. Well, she was their housekeeper, so she was in there all the time. Yeah, but there was no reaction to that. Like, oh, she died. We're going to her funeral. Like Rachel couldn't go to the funeral because she was too upset. Right. And I thought maybe that's because she found her or something, but I I didn't know. Well, the movie may have taken those liberties, but in the book, the reason she didn't go to the funeral is because she had a past history with death that traumatized her as a kid. But But she does bring that up later on, right? Because that funeral is what leads to... The dad talking to Missy that she overhears, which leads to their conversation, which is how we wind up hearing about Zelda. So I guess that was the point of it to to introduce that scene. Yeah, I just they could have used the normal normal Crandall stuff and that would have been more Mm -hmm. believable and it would have made more sense. But it is kind of a long way around. I'll give you that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, All right, then. Miko Hughes was my pick as Gage for a most underrated performance. Mass pick was, I'm going to pronounce her name wrong, Susan Blomert. 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 Blomert uh, as Missy Dandridge. It might be something like Blomier. But Blomier. Blomert. Something okay. like that. We're going to call her Susie. Oh, Susie Q. <laughs> Susie B. Susie. Best scene. All right, Matt. <clears throat> I don't think you're probably not going to like me, but I'm not going to say it's the best scene and it's certainly not my favorite scene, but the most. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Let me stop you there. What? This is for best scene. Yeah. And you just said it's not the best scene and it's not my favorite scene. Okay. So I'm I'm really interested as why you've picked this for best scene. It's not my favorite scene. But it's a good scene in the context of the movie. How about that? Okay, okay, I'll take it. Uh, But the scene where Gage gets run over. Is by far the most emotional scene of the film, and you're just on Second edge, most. in your opinion. 
you're just hoping and praying you're on the edge of your seat that Lewis can run fast enough to get to his son in time and not so you can't get run over. Yeah. And we've already talked about how that's a realistic scenario. Mm-hmm. That's a thing that could, can happen. It could happen to me tomorrow as much as I don't want it to happen. You think about those things. Oh yeah. And that, that is nightmare fuel for parents. No, um, I, I, you know, I, I that's not what I chose, but I have to agree with you hundred percent. It's, yeah. um, yeah, I mean, it rarely has a scene had that much of an effect on me as that one did. And I mean, that's one of the main scenes. Anyone who's seen this movie, you're going to remember that shoe bouncing down the highway. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, Lewis screaming at the top of his lungs. Uh, but with the book and the movie, like if you have any idea about what the movie or the book is about, you're like, oh, it's the movie or the book where the kid gets run over by an 18 wheeler. Like, yep, that's that's it. Like, there's nothing else, even though the movie movie and book are about more than that. But and what's interesting is the the imagery on the posters and the trailers and, and the pictures, promotional stuff. It's always the cat church. Yes. Yeah. But most people don't are like, why. oh, yeah, it's the movie with the kid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess because they don't want to show a bloody shoe on the front cover of a, of the book. Well, I think I think they want it to be a shock. You know, yeah, it, it's been around so long now that most people know it's coming. But if you've if you'd never heard of it, like imagine seeing this in the theaters, never having read the book and not knowing what's going to happen. Like, yeah, yeah, whoa, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, I would have been in shock and all if I'd not known. Uh, so what's your pick? Uh, I don't have one. I didn't like any of the scenes. <laughs> Bold move, Cotton. <laughs> no, I, I'm just teasing. Um, I, I have to say, uh, you picked a good scene, first of all. Um, that probably is the, the best scene in the movie, even though I hate it. Um, but it's because I hate it that it's probably the best scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, for me, I went with the, the scene where uh, Victor... First appears to Lewis, wakes him up, and takes him down to the pet cemetery. This is the place where the dead speak. I want to wake up. I want to wake up. That's all. Don't go on, Doc. No matter how much you may feel you have to, do not go on to the place where the dead walk. I just want to wake up, that's all. I just want to wake up, that's all. The barrier was not meant to be crossed. It's not my fault that you died. You were as good as dead when they brought you in. The ground beyond is And they have their talk in the pet cemetery. Um, I thought that was well done. It was eerie, but it wasn't, it it was eerie in like being haunted by a friendly ghost kind of way. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. It it gave me an odd feeling that was equal parts horror and peace. If that makes any sense at all, you know, like, like when you find out that this horrible looking, just 
I say disfigured, but that's not really right. Just horrible looking mangled body of a, of a boy uh, shows up and is just floating there. And you're like, oh, my gosh, that's horrifying. But then you find out that he's actually trying to help him to repay him for the kindness he showed him in life. And um, I thought that was great. And then the conversation that they have down at the pet cemetery, I thought that was really good. It was creepy. And it was prophetic, and it was just really well done, I thought. Mm-hmm. The dirt is sour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, I agree. Like, I, I get what you're saying, and I don't know how to describe it either, but it was like they wanted you to believe it was a dream sequence until after you've, mm-hmm. until it, it's not. And so I guess that was the point. To make it sort of peaceful, like it, he was just having a dream. Um, yeah. But at the same will, time, it was unsettling. Um, I will say also, if the movie had explained more about this dark power and its influence and what it was, then I would have picked um, when Judd says that he thinks it's his fault that Gage was killed. Because mm-hmm. that scene was amazing. But given the movie as a whole, that came kind of out of context. And it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, so I, I can't put that, even though still that's some that's some really top notch, amazing acting in that scene. Yeah. Matt's best scene was the scene when Victor Pascal first meets uh, Lewis as a ghost. And my best scene was the scene where Gage gets run over. <laughs> uh, that's hard to say. Um it's true, though. It, that probably is yeah. the most significant scene in the movie. Yeah. Okay, last category. Worst scene. What do you have? This one was a lot easier for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, it was near the end when Lewis engaged fight. I thought that scene was just ridiculous, right? Yeah. Like Lewis is, you're, you're real creeped out because Lewis is taunting or Gage is taunting Lewis, like play hide and seek, you know, find me daddy. And I played with mommy and I played with Mr. Judd. And now I want to play with you and <laughs> laughs and just, it's just real creepy. And you're just like, Oh no, like this is terrifying. And then just all of a sudden out of nowhere, like, Gage busts open the attic, chunks his mom down, a full grown woman who's, you know, hung her neck like clunks on the neck. And then he launches at him like he's some kind of gremlin or something and just like <laughs> latches onto his chest and starts stabbing. Uh, Lewis starts like, oh, 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 and he starts panicking and running around. And it's obvious that he's holding a mannequin. Because the, there's parts where you just see a stiff body and the arms are just kind of muppeting around like, you know, and it's it just wasn't very good. Like I was really pretty freaked out and spooked. Well, I, I, don't, I wasn't scared, but it was a significantly 
scary part of the film, I guess. And then they just ruin it by having like, it's like the, what the Chucky movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This little doll launches at somebody and they can't just toss them off of him. Like, come on. (laughs) But I'm not going to argue with you because I agree that the movie kind of goes off the rails there at the end. I do want to say that the ending, probably 30 minutes of this movie with the exception of that scene, I thought was outstanding because mm. you get tons of quick cuts, right? Like you're you're with Lewis and he's in the cemetery digging up his kid. And then you're with Judd, who's like, I'm going to sit out here with my six beers and I'm going to make this right. And then you're cutting to Rachel, who's rushing home from Chicago. And it's just relentless. Like mm-hmm. it's almost like every three minutes you cut to another point of view. And it, the result is it's just this really fast paced, like hitting you just. Constantly with all these different viewpoints and all these things that are happening and you know, it's all coming to a big head. And that was masterfully done, I think. And yeah. I, I really want to give points to the, the director of this movie. Um, What's her name? Mary um, Lambert. Thank you. Mary Lambert. Um, Wow. I mean, that, that was amazing. It was super effective and it was very well done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, so the the book is just like that. Like you're cutting between Lewis, Judd, Rachel, Lewis, Judd, Rachel, and it was it was really engaging. Uh, the the movie sort of gets a little silly at the end after that, like you said, um, where the book doesn't quite get there with in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, but I do agree that 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 was all silliness with the, with gauges, uh, attacking. Mm. <laughs> um, my worst scene is the stuff with Missy Dandridge. <laughs> oh um, no. <laughs> it just felt tacked on. It had no point to the story. Really. It just seemed like filler. And I know they were trying to convey th- that Rachel had an issue with death. Uh, but they could have done it in such a different way, um, to make it make more sense. And have Missy either not be there at all or just be what she was in the book, which was just a, a caretaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, it re- Really, I can't think of another part of the movie that I would have wanted to take out other than that. And so that was why I thought it's probably the worst scene. Mm-hmm. It was disturbing and and whatnot, but. It was it, it was just kind of out of left field. I agree. Or right field, whatever that expression is. It could have been erased and, and been fine. It wouldn't have, have affected the movie. All right. Worst scene for me was the scenes with Missy Dandridge. Uh, Matt's worst scene were the scenes where Gage attacks Lewis at the end. Evil Gage. Undead mm-hmm. Gage. Yeah, the scenes where happy little toddler Gage attacks Lewis were fine. Sorry, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Did you know, Matt? Did you know that Bruce Campbell was the first choice for the role of Lewis Creed? You know, it's it's not often that we read one of these almost casted trivia facts. And I think, yeah, (laughs) but you know, in this case, yeah, yeah, that would have been better. 
Yeah. I think assuming that Bruce could have pulled it off and been serious and not thrown his goofiness that he likes to throw in there in. I don't even care if he did uh, all the better. (laughs) It might've, it might've honestly, it might've been a nice offset to the just constant barrage of depression that this movie gives me. Mm -hmm. So did you know, John? Mm -hmm. Sorry. Did I know? I'm trying to be like you and and follow that dramatic pause. Sorry. Uh, this movie was originally supposed to be directed by George Romero, Ooh. Uh, but the filming wound up getting delayed. And as a result, he dropped off of the project. He was going to do it like he had signed on to do it. But because of the delays, he dropped and uh, he wound up directing Monkey Shines instead. And Mary Lambert filled his spot. And while hmm. I think uh, while I think Romero could have done a really good job with this movie. I'm honestly glad because I feel like Mary Lambert did an amazing job with this. Yeah. I would have liked to have seen a George Romero uh, Pet Cemetery, though. Yeah. Because that would have been that's, interesting. That's right in his wheelhouse. <laughs> the dead are rising or waking back up. Did you know that Gage, who was played by Miko Hughes, was around 32 months old? When he did this movie, which puts him at a little over two. Yeah. Young actor. Very young. This was. Oh, Mary Lambert is a well-known uh, music video director. Uh, when she directed this movie, this was her second feature film. And as I said, she was better known for doing like Madonna, Material Girl music video, Like a Prayer music video. Um. Through her work in the music industry, Lambert was also friends with the Ramones Mm. and who he mentioned was one of Stephen King's favorite bands. And she approached them about recording a song for the movie and they agreed to write and perform the ever famous Pet Cemetery, uh, Mm. which is at the end of the. I don't want to be buried in a pet cemetery. Joey, Ramon, are you alive? Uh, no, I, I've, I've already died. I got hit by a truck about an hour ago. You sound just like him. Yeah, yeah. Obviously. Stay tuned for my album called Things I Wish I'd Never Done. Uh, here's an interesting one for you. In 1997, uh, the classic Stephen King story, The Shining, was remade as a four TV miniseries uh, for ABC. Mm-hmm. Some of y'all might remember this. It was actually pretty well done, I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, in that miniseries, Stephen King has a cameo in it, which Stephen King has a cameo in pretty much every film that's adapted from his works. In the in that miniseries, the cameo that he has is as Gage Creed. Uh, he plays the conductor of the Gage Creed band that plays at the <laughs> Overlook Hotel. Nice. Little connection that's there awesome. for you. They had to shoot Pascal's Don't Make Me Tell You Twice scene twice because it was felt that Dale Midkiff looked too sexy. He was sleeping shirtless. (laughs) Dale, Dale, put a shirt on. You look too sexy. uh, I'm getting Jurassic Park vibes from that. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, Church, as I mentioned, was played by seven cats, not one. Uh, each of them individually trained to take on different aspects of the role. So like one of them was trained to be sweet and cuddly. One of them was trained to be hissy and growly and so forth and so on. Uh, but the, um, the cat itself, the cats themselves rather, uh, were British short hair cats. Hmm. Which is why I didn't know they were different cats because they were all like purebred cats. As such a thing exists, I'm not convinced. <laughs> when Mrs. Creed hitches a ride with the trucker after she has car problems, the truck number is 666. This uh, this gets a little more into the story aspect of it as it pertains more to the book than to the movie, but it's still an interesting fact. Uh, this story was inspired by actual events that Stephen King experienced while he was living in Maine with his family. Uh, he said that while he was there, his daughter's cat was killed by a truck on a highway uh, and that he's taken a lot of Ellie's emotional state from the movie it is directly taken from his own daughter dealing with the death of their cat. Uh, on top of that, uh, Judd, the, the lovable character <laughs> who we all agree was amazingly well acted, uh, was uh, based off of his elderly next door neighbor who lived across the road from him. And to even increase this more, Stephen King actually did have a pet cemetery in some woods behind his house. Yeah, I forgot about that. I read that. So in the book, there's a forward where Stephen King talks about a lot of that stuff. And I remember now that he mentioned a lot of that. It's kind of interesting, which if mm -hmm. you read his book on writing, he talks about pulling from your life to put into books. And I know a lot of authors do that. Um, one more interesting fact kind of revolving around this whole thing. The name of the cat that was killed was Smucky. And um, both in the book and in the movie, if you look at the tombstones in the pet cemetery, you'll see a grave for Smucky. Apparently that was a portrait of Zelda as a child, which is even more disturbing <laughs> in, in, in the house. I thought it was an old lady. Hmm. But that is Zelda as a child. I, I get the old lady thing, but the the kid in the portrait was like two feet tall. <laughs> I thought it was a little midget lady. Sorry, little person lady. But if you're interested in the body count, there were six people killed. <laughs> uh, there are scenes when Gage has a his father's scalpel, as we've discussed. Um, this is somewhat alarming if you think about the fact that Gage was a little over two years old and holding a scalpel during the filming mm -hmm. of this movie. Uh, it's been confirmed that the scalpel he was holding was uh, very much dulled, so it couldn't cut anything. Ah. Also, um, there was a lot of concern when this film came out, as uh, I imagine there would be, about the, uh, the psychological impact that acting in this movie would have on Gage. Cage's actor, sorry, um, to deal with this and to address these concerns. When Gage was on screen, he was always shot separate from any violence or blood. So he never saw any of the really bad aspects of the film. Um, hmm. Anytime that he's in those kinds of shots, it's either like a mannequin, like as I pointed out, was pretty obvious, 
or uh, they filmed him separately and then inserted him into a green screen. Oh, there was a, there was a puppet also that they used. Mary Lambert was interviewed about the film once. And uh, she said basically that she sees the character of Victor Pascal as the good angel and uh, the character of Judd as the bad angel, which kind of confirms kind of how we hmm. were seeing it, except we were looking at Victor versus the, uh, the cemetery itself. Right. Um, she said um, basically that Judd was the, the friendly old man that Lewis should be ignoring uh, his wardrobe. Uh, especially that large jacket with the hood that he's wearing when they find the dead church on the side of the road is supposed to suggest the the darkness that's inside of him. Like apparently he's affected somewhat by the the powers of that cemetery, probably because he buried his dog there all those years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, as a result, even though he's a friendly, affable old elderly, I should say neighbor, um, he's also sort of viewed as, at least by the director of the film, as a, a conveyor of the darkness of that burial ground, which is kind of somewhat true because he is the one that shows Lewis the burial ground and, and yeah. therefore is the catalyst for everything that happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a lot of how they conveyed in the book is that he he Judd himself feels compelled to let Lewis know that all that stuff is possible. So, yeah, you could probably say he is affected. He has some sort of connection, probably because of burying his dog there. All right. That's going to be our episode for tonight. You can join us in two weeks when we will be reviewing the 1983 drama The Outsiders, starring Ralph Macchio. We'd love it if you subscribe to the Cinema Men podcast on your podcast player of choice and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, head on over to cinemamenpodcast.com to check out new and old episodes. We always love to hear from listeners. So if you have a suggestion or want to give your give us your take on a movie, feel free to email us at feedback at cinemamenpodcast.com or check us out on Twitter at twitter.com slash cinemamenpod. Thanks for listening. Hey, John. Yeah. Uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to need you to go ahead and bury me up in that uh, Indian barrel ground real quick. Okay. I, I'd help you, but you have to bury your own. You know. Yeah, I understand. All right, thanks. Seen a dream.